From New York, this is Democracy Now! The court concludes prima facie that South Africa has standing to submit to it the dispute with Israel concerning alleged violations of obligations under the Genocide Convention. In a landmark ruling, the International Court of Justice finds a plausible risk that Israel's committing genocide in Gaza and orders provisional measures, but stops short of calling for an immediate ceasefire. We'll play excerpts and get response. Then, to the uncle of a Palestinian-American teenager who was just shot dead in the West Bank last week. His family is calling for a transparent investigation. All that and more, coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The International Court of Justice has ordered Israel to take all measures within its power to prevent genocide in Gaza. The highly anticipated ruling of the World Court got underway shortly before we went under on air. This is Joan Donahue, president of the International Court of Justice. The court considers that the plausible rights in question in this proceeding, namely the right of Palestinians in the Gaza Strip to be protected from acts of genocide and related prohibited acts identified in Article 3 of the Genocide Convention, and the right of South Africa to seek Israel's compliance with the latter's obligation under the Convention, are of such a nature that prejudice to them is capable of causing irreparable harm. The ICJ started by ruling it has jurisdiction over the case brought by South Africa and dismissed Israel's bid to throw it out. The court, however, did not order an immediate ceasefire. The interim verdict is a major blow to Israel and the United States, which have undermined the case despite overwhelming evidence presented by South Africa. The court will not rule today on whether Israel has committed genocide. That verdict could take years. We'll have more on the historic ruling after headlines. Meanwhile, Israel's unrelenting assault on Gaza continues as the death toll tops 26,000, with at least another 65,000 injured. Over 11,000 of those killed are children. Khan Yunus, once designated as a so-called safe zone, remains under intense attack, with Israeli shelling and snipers reportedly targeting the Nasser and Alamal hospitals. Hundreds of families have fled the area in recent days after Israeli forces surrounded the southern city. World Health Organization chief Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus, who struggled to speak after becoming emotional, appealed for an immediate ceasefire. Seventy percent of the dead are children and women. That alone is enough for a ceasefire. Because... The bulk of the casualty, you know where it is. So I think it has, this thing has to be taken seriously. And going forward, by the way, the number of deaths will increase not only due to uh, injuries, but chronically ill people, for instance. 
Meanwhile, CIA Director William Burns will reportedly travel to France this weekend for a fourth round of talks aimed at reaching a halt in the fighting and a release of the remaining hostages in Gaza. The talks involve officials from the United States, Israel, Qatar and Egypt. This comes as tensions mount between Israel and Qatar after leaked audio surfaced of Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu calling Qatar problematic as he met with family members of hostages. Doha slammed the remarks as, quote, obstructing and undermining the mediation process. Two more U.S. cities on Thursday passed resolutions for a ceasefire in Gaza. Minneapolis's resolution, approved in a 9-3 to vote, also called for an end to U.S. military funding for Israel. Meanwhile, Somerville became the first Massachusetts city to pass a ceasefire resolution after months of constituent organizing. Cambridge, which is home to Harvard, is expected to pass their own ceasefire resolution on Monday. The United States and Iraq will start talks on phasing out the U.S.-led military coalition in Iraq. The U.S. has more than 2,500 troops in Iraq that initially returned to Iraq in 2014 to combat Islamic State fighters. U.S. bases have since come under attack by Iran-affiliated groups, which have increased in light of the U.S. backing of Israel's assault on Gaza. In Alabama, prison officials ended the life of 58-year-old Kenneth Smith via nitrogen gas asphyxiation in the nation's first-of-its-kind execution. In his final statement, Smith said, quote, "'Tonight, Alabama causes humanity to take a step backwards. I'm leaving with love, peace, and light,' he said." The case has garnered international condemnation. Kenneth Smith's spiritual advisor, Jeff Hood, witnessed the execution and rebuked Alabama's attorney general, who'd predicted Smith would lose consciousness within seconds and die within minutes. This is Jeff Hood. What we saw was minutes of someone struggling for their life. We saw minutes of someone heaving back and forth. We saw spit, we saw all sorts of stuff from his mouth develop on the mask. We saw this mask tied to the gurney and him ripping his head forward over and over and over again. And we also saw correction officials in the room who were visibly surprised at how bad this thing went. A federal judge sentenced former Trump adviser Peter Navarro to four months in prison Thursday for contempt of Congress after he defied a subpoena from the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection. Judge Ahmed Mehta told Navarro that citing executive privilege is not a, quote, magical incantation or get-out-of-jail-free card. In other Trump news, closing arguments are being delivered today in a second defamation trial brought by writer E. Jean Carroll. This trial will determine whether Trump owes Carroll more damages on top of the $5 million a jury awarded her last year after finding Trump sexually abused her in the 1990s and later defamed her. A new study has found tens of thousands of pregnancies have resulted from rape in states where abortion was banned following the overturning of Roe v. Wade in 2022. 
Over the past 18 months, researchers estimate there were nearly 65,000 pregnancies from sexual assaults, with most, if not all, survivors, including girls, forced to carry them to term. Texas topped the list with 45 percent of the rape-related pregnancies. In Michigan, a first-of-its-kind manslaughter trial is underway for Jennifer Crumbly, the mother of the Oxford High School shooter, Ethan Crumbly was just 15 years old when he opened fire on the school in 2021, killing four students and injuring six other people. His father, James Crumbly, is being tried separately later this year. This is Prosecutor Mark Keese delivering his opening statement. The evidence will prove that by the time this gun was bought, the school shooter was in a downward spiral that had begun months before. The evidence will also show you that Jennifer Crumbly was aware of that. Despite her knowledge of his deteriorating mental crisis, despite her knowledge of his growing social isolation, despite the fact that it is illegal for a 15-year-old to walk into a gun store and walk out with a handgun by himself, this gun was gifted. France's top court ruled large parts of a new, highly contested immigration bill are unconstitutional. The court threw out nearly half the 80 measures in the legislation, including restrictions on access to welfare benefits for non-citizens and the denial of citizenship for children born in France. Immigrant rights activists and their allies took to the streets to welcome the move and vowed to keep fighting. We are asking to be equal with others. We are simple, and it's simple what we're asking for. We want residency. We want to live with dignity in this country. The French are leaving here. They're going to our countries. We want freedom. That's it. Freedom, equality, fraternity. In Australia, thousands of people rallied in indigenous-led protests on so-called Australia Day, marking the arrival of European colonizers in 1788. January 26 has been dubbed Invasion Day by Aboriginal communities and their allies, who are pushing to do away with the national holiday. This is Aboriginal elder Adrian Buraguba. We're here to tell people that Australia Day doesn't mean anything to us. It's the day of Aboriginal sovereignty. That day when they came here, we have to keep telling people that we were operating under our law and we still operate under our laws. And the law is in the land. And here in New York, a memorial service for National Security Advisor and Secretary of State Henry Kissinger was met with protests Thursday. Activists chanted, burn Henry Byrne, as they remembered the four million people Kissinger's actions have killed across the globe. We mourn the millions he killed. We mourn those in Cambodia, in Vietnam, in Laos, in Bangladesh, in East Timor, in Chile, in Argentina, in Cyprus, in Iraq in Palestine and in Angola. As we mourn the dead, we also honor those who fight to live. The litany of resistance groups that have stood up to Kissinger's imperialism outlived Henry Kissinger. Activists held up signs that said Henry Kissinger war criminal. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. In a landmark ruling today, the International Court of Justice found plausible risk that Israel's committing genocide in Gaza and ordered provisional measures, but stopped short of calling for an immediate ceasefire. 
The ruling was read out by the president of the court, Joan Donahue. She began with the finding that South Africa had jurisdiction to bring the case against Israel. In the court's view, at least some of the acts and omissions alleged by South Africa to have been committed by Israel in Gaza appear to be capable of falling within the provisions of the convention. In light of the following, the court concludes that prima facie, it has jurisdiction pursuant to Article 9 of the convention to entertain the case. South Africa had asked the court as a matter of extreme urgency to impose emergency measures to protect Palestinians in Gaza. The president of the court went on to read out the findings regarding South Africa's request for provisional measures. In the court's view, the aforementioned facts and circumstances are sufficient to conclude that at least some of the rights claimed by South Africa and for which it is seeking protection are plausible. This is the case with respect to the right of Palestinians in Gaza to be protected from acts of genocide and related prohibited acts identified in Article 3, and the right of South Africa to seek Israel's compliance with the latter's obligations under the Convention. The Court then turns to the condition of the link between the plausible rights claimed by South Africa and the provisional measures requested. It considers that by their very nature, at least some of the provisional measures sought by South Africa are aimed at preserving the plausible rights it asserts on the basis of the Genocide Convention in the present case, namely, the right of the Palestinians in Gaza to be protected from acts of genocide and related prohibited acts mentioned in Article 3, and the right of South Africa to seek Israel's compliance with the latter's obligations under the Convention. Therefore, a link exists between the rights claimed by South Africa that the court has found to be plausible and at least some of the provisional measures requested. The president of the court, Joan Donahue, cited the killing of Palestinians in Gaza, mass displacement, deprivation of aid and other charges brought by South Africa, and went on to say the court found a plausible risk that Israel is committing genocide in Gaza. The court considers that there is urgency in the sense that there is a real and imminent risk that irreparable prejudice will be caused to the rights found by the court to be plausible before it gives its final decision. The court concludes on the basis of the aforementioned considerations that the conditions required by its statute for it to indicate provisional measures are met. It is therefore necessary, pending its final decision, for the court to indicate certain measures in order to protect the rights claimed by South Africa that the court has found to be plausible. For more, we're joined by three guests. We're going to begin in Haifa with Diana Butu, Palestinian human rights attorney, former advisor to the negotiating team of the Palestine Liberation Organization. In 2004, Diana Butu was part of the legal team that won the case before the International Court of Justice, which ruled Israel's separation wall in the West Bank is illegal under international law. Uh, Diana Butu, welcome back to Democracy Now! Uh, if you can respond to the court's ruling that was just released moments before we went to air. This is uh, an amazing ruling because it highlights everything that the South African team and, of course, Palestinians have been saying the entire time, which is that Israel is 
plausibly carrying out genocide. And so the fact that the court has indicated to Israel that they have to take measures to prevent genocide, to make sure that soldiers are doing the same, to prosecute those individuals who are inciting, including high high, uh, government officials, and ensure that there is effective humanitarian aid is precisely what was sought by Palestinians. It's now up to the world to make sure that this court ruling is actually enacted. But they did not call for an immediate ceasefire, as South Africa asked. The significance of this. I think it's very difficult at this stage for the court to be pushing for a ceasefire. But in the fact that they said first and foremost, that Israel has to take all all measures to prevent acts of genocide is enough for the world to then be pushing for a ceasefire. It's really up to the international system as we know it to make sure that, that genocide is not carried out. And so it's, import, it's imperative that this be followed up by countries around the world, making sure that Israel doesn't get to do whatever it wants to do with Palestinians in Gaza and continue this genocide. And can you talk about the woman who we heard delivering the pronouncement of the court, Joan Donahue, a former State Department official, though she's not representing the United States in this, she represents the court. Uh, She was in the State Department uh, under President Obama. Well, yes, and she she was the per, she was one of the judges, one of seventeen uh, judges on the bench. Two of them are ad hoc. Fifty one of the fifteen permanent judges who ruled in favor of all of the measures that had been sought. Um, her term actually expires on February the sixth, and so she won't be with the court after that. But it was very important that this decision not just be a split court, but you can tell by the breadth of it that. Uh, of the 17 judges, two being ad hoc, that on most of the issues, it was 15 versus two, one being the Ugandan judge and the second, of course, being the Israeli judge. And in some cases, it being 16 to one, with the one ironically being the Ugandan judge. Why the Ugandan judge? It's not clear. It's not entirely clear why. Um, it's clear why the Israeli judge, obviously. But but what's more important is the fact that we see that that this court has overwhelmingly decided in favor of South Africa, has overwhelmingly determined that there's plausible risk of genocide, and it becomes imperative upon the world community to now act. You know, the fact that it's taken 112 days for the world to finally recognize that this is genocide and that it had to go to court says something about the international legal system as we know it, which is that it's broken. But I'm hoping that based on this, the world will now begin to act and rather than hiding behind uh, all of these false claims that Israel has repeated um, for, for the past 112 days. I want to bring Roz Siegel into this discussion, Israeli historian, associate professor of Holocaust and Genocide Studies at Stockton University, endowed professor in the study of modern genocide, co-authored a recent piece for Al Jazeera headlined, Intent in the Genocide Case Against Israel is Not Hard to Prove. He's joining us to, from Philadelphia. Professor, welcome back to Democracy Now!, your response to this ruling. Hello. Uh, yeah, good morning. Thank you for having me. Uh, I think this is uh, uh, really an unprecedented uh, ruling. It signals, uh, uh, first and foremost, the end of Israeli impunity in the international legal system, which is huge, right? Israel has enjoyed impunity in the international legal system for decades in the face of mounting evidence of gross violations of international law, uh, of 
uh, uh, mass violence, occupation, siege, so on. This is the end of that era. Uh, so it's just the beginning of a process that it really, I think, now uh, with a ruling that basically recognizes the plausibility uh, of genocide, uh, the fact that Israel is likely committing genocidal acts, uh, this is the beginning of a process of isolating uh, Israel because any university, company, state now uh, will have to consider uh, moving forward, whether it continues or doesn't continue in many cases, I think, to engage with Israel because it is likely committing genocide. This also legally triggers third state, third state responsibility uh, on issues of prevention and complicity uh, with genocide. And this is significantly important today, where in a few hours in a court in Florida, we'll, uh, there will be the hearing in the case that the Center for Constitutional Rights uh, has brought against uh, Biden, Lincoln, and Austin, indeed on complicity with genocide, U.S. complicity with genocide and the failure to prevent uh, uh, genocide. So this might have actually... Uh, uh, a certain effect even on this case today in California and moving forward. So this is really unprecedented. Um, uh, yes, it is a disappointment that uh, the court did not order an immediate uh, ceasefire, but it did order um, uh, Israel to uh, cease from any genocidal acts, which de facto is actually an order for ceasefire. And what about the issue of getting aid into Gaza, Razigal? Yeah, the, the, the court also uh, uh, issued an order uh, on the urgent need, and it stressed, of course, the really unprecedented scale of destruction uh, and killing the, the dire uh, uh, situation in Gaza in terms of uh, what we know, the levels of hunger and uh, um, the spread of infectious disease. So it also uh, uh, order this, which is, again, very, very uh, important. I mean, it, we, all, we all need to now wait and see what Israel's response to this will be. I want to also bring into this discussion Mahmoud Mamdani, professor of government at Columbia University, who specializes in the study of colonialism. One of his many books is Neither Settler Nor Native, The Making and Unmaking of Permanent Minorities. He was previously a professor and director of the Center for African Studies at the University of Cape Town in South Africa and has been an academic leader in Uganda for years. Um, Professor Mamdani, your response to this ruling? We discussed yesterday, before the ruling, what you expected. What did you see today? Thank you for bringing me in. Um, actually, everything that I expected uh, happened. Uh, I wasn't sure they would uh, call for a ceasefire. Uh, but now listening to the reasoning of the court, uh, it is clear to me that they couldn't have called directly for a ceasefire uh, without preempting uh, their future deliberations. At the same time, uh, if it walks like a duck, talks like a duck, and sounds like a duck, then it's a duck. Everything they ordered in terms of preventive measures leads to only one conclusion which is ceasefire. How do you stop killing people? Ceasefire. How do you ensure that supplies for human life get in? Ceasefire. And so on and so forth. Um, 
I think the the ball is now now in 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 the political domain. Uh, the law can uh, the law cannot displace politics. It can open avenues for politics, and that's where we are now. Um, this ruling is enormously significant in terms of broadening the avenues for politics, uh, in terms of strengthening and accelerating the trend towards a global alliance um, against uh, a, a settler colonialism. Um, and and it, it has the U.S. on the defensive, Israel on the defensive. We know that the last time the court ruled against Israel, which was the on on the question of the wall, Israel just ignored it. Uh, but but this time, I think it may not be so easy to do. First of all, one has to ask oneself: Why did Israel come before the court? It could have just ignored it, uh, according to its uh, its 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 past conduct. That's what it would have done. So the fact that it came before the court suggests that there are conflicting pressures uh, before the Israeli government. Um, now, what does it do? Um, I think this this is one goal in the favor of the world, and we continue with the game. And your insight into the Ugandan judge of the International Court of Justice. Sometimes the vote was 15 to 2, as Diana Butu said, um, uh, the a Ugandan judge and the Israeli uh, uh, judge, um, and sometimes it was 16 to 1. Well, Judge Sebutimbe, I she has a she had a career where she had uh, she had opposed the Museveni regime on several uh, uh, legal issues in court. Uh, then she was appointed by the Museveni regime uh, on the international stage, thus removing her from the from the local stage. Um, I haven't followed her career since then, uh, but she was pretty consistent. Uh, there seemed to be no indication that she was making up her mind from issue to issue. Um, I can't say anything more than that right now. Well, we're going to go to break and then come back to our guests. We're speaking with Columbia University professor Mahmoud Mamdani here in New York, with Raz Siegel, the Israeli historian and professor of Holocaust and Genocide Studies at Stockton University, and in Haifa, Diana Butu, Palestinian human rights attorney. We'll also hear more from the International Court of Justice, the UN's highest court. Stay with us. You that never done nothing But build to destroy You play with my world Like it's your little toy You put a gun in my hand And you hide from my eyes and you turn and run farther when the fast bullets fly Like Judas of old You lie and deceive A world war can be won You want me to believe 
But I see through your eyes And I see through your brain Like I see through the water that runs down my drain You fasten all the triggers For the others to fire Masters of War, Bob Dylan, here on Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The International Court of Justice, the UN's highest court, has found a plausible risk Israel's committing genocide in Gaza and ordered provisional measures, but stopped short of calling for an immediate ceasefire. This is the president of the court, Joan Donahue, reading out the vote of part of the ruling. By 15 votes to two, the State of Israel shall, in accordance with its obligations under the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide in relation to the Palestinians in Gaza, take all measures within its power to prevent the commission of all acts within the scope of Article 2 of the Convention, in particular, A, killing members of the group, B, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group, C, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part. And D, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group. Over a one-hour ruling, the International Court of Justice President Joan Donahue in The Hague quoted Israel's defense minister, Yoav Gallant, saying that as the war got underway, Gallant had said, we have removed all restraints, we will eliminate everything, referring to Palestinians as animals. Judge Donahue continued, Gallant went on to describe Hamas as comparable to the Islamic State. After proceedings concluded today, the South African government said it welcomed the ICJ's decision. Uh, we're continuing with our guests right now, Diana Butu, Palestinian human rights attorney in Haifa, Israel, Raz Siegel, Israeli historian and professor of Holocaust and Genocide Studies, Stockton University, joining us from Philadelphia, and Mahmoud Mamdani, professor of government at Columbia University, specializing in the study of colonialism. Diana Butu, if you can talk about um, what exactly the timetable is right now and the true level of enforcement um, that the ICJ or even the United Nations overall has. Um, go back to, using as a reference, your involvement with the 2004 decision where the ICJ ruled the separation wall that Israel built in the occupied territories illegal. Well, let's first start with this particular case. I think it's important to keep in mind that uh, just last week, Prime Minister Netanyahu said that nothing is going to stop him, not the ICJ, not The Hague, nobody is going to stop him and that he's going to continue to pursue ahead. And of course, the reason he's doing this is um, in part because he is genocidal and in large part because he knows that that uh, the minute that the that his the attacks on Gaza are over, that his um, his term in office is also over because of the internal dissent inside Israel. 
And the reason that this is important is because it's it's I, we haven't heard yet what Israel's going what they've said, but judging by that, it means that they're going to ignore this ruling. And if they ignore this ruling, it then becomes imperative um, upon the member states to take this decision to the UN Security Council to have the ruling enforced at the Security Council level. And it becomes really a question of whether the United States is going to veto or abstain or what exactly it's going to do. I can tell you in terms of what happened in 2004, 2004 was a very different case. It was an advisory opinion. Uh, it wasn't a case in the, of the same type. And in 2004, Israel took the exact same position, that it wasn't going to stop the construction of the wall. In fact, it accelerated it. And uh, But part of the decision indicated that there are, there are other states, third states, other countries, that are also obliged to make sure that Israel upholds international law. And that was the part that the, where the world failed. And out of that, this is where we saw the BDS, the Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions Movement, ended up being recreated, reconstituted um, on the one-year anniversary of the ICJ ruling, so in 2005. And the reason that it came together was because they expected, we expected, that the world was going to come forward and do something to make sure that the advisory opinion was upheld and enforced, but instead they did nothing. So once again, we're going to see that, we will likely see that Israel is going to ignore this ruling. It's then imperative to take it to the UN Security Council. But all the while, it's very important that we continue the, to boycott Israel, to divest from Israel, and to push for sanctions, that the global BDS movement should be growing at this point to make sure that the age of Israeli impunity finally comes to an end. Ross Siegel, um, if you can talk about uh, the aspects of genocide, uh, you write, the crime of genocide has two elements, intention and execution. And what Joan Donahue, the head of the court, at least for another few weeks, um, read in terms of the decision for uh, what constitutes genocide— and what this means, as an Israeli historian who lives in the United States, while Israel um, tried to say this doesn't matter, the fact is they participated in this, clearly showing it matters a great deal to them, and also what it means for the United States' support for Israel and what's happening today with this court finding. Yeah, so I think that uh, it was very important that uh, uh, the court uh, um, quoted uh, some of the uh, statements uh, of intent. And it's, it's, again, important to emphasize that we're talking about dozens of statements of intent to destroy Palestinians, intent to destroy in the language of the UN Convention, uh, and by people with what's called an international law command authority, so state leaders, war cabinet ministers, senior army officers. And these statements were made over time, so not just a week or uh, two after the 7th of October Hamas-led attack, but over time. Actually, until today, when we think about what uh, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu said on 13th of January, when he said that Israel's attack will continue, whatever happens in The Hague, he also reiterated uh, the portrayal of Palestinians uh, uh, as Nazis, for example, 
right, which is a, a, a basically a mechanism of dehumanization, a mechanism that uh, uh, portrays all Palestinians uh, uh, in Gaza as legitimate military targets. So these statements of intent, again, dozens of statements over time by people with command uh, authority, filled with humanizing uh, language, right, human animals, monsters, which historically we know are indicators of uh, uh, genocide. So I think it was very significant that the court um, uh, mentioned and quoted some of these uh, statements to emphasize that it's not, as uh, Israel uh, tried to argue, that it's not uh, something that we can uh, disregard, that it's actually a key element of the crime uh, of genocide, and we should be paying attention uh, uh, to this. But then it also emphasized uh, a number of times, actually, the really unprecedented scale of killing and destruction uh, on the ground, the catastrophic uh, uh, situation that Palestinians are facing now. Um, and in this, situ in this uh, uh, context, I think it's very important to say that the court basically accepted uh, South Africa's argument that Israel's quote-unquote evacuation orders are not actually, as Israel claimed, humanitarian measures, but they're actually genocidal in essence. They're, they're, that means that they are meant, which is what they did, to displace millions of people, almost two million Palestinians, well, virtually almost all the Palestinians uh, in the Gaza Strip, and under uh, 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 intensive bombings, and we know that Israel also bombed Palestinians fleeing on routes that it designated as safe, it also bombed Palestinians in the southern part of the Strip uh, early on, which it designated as safe. And, of course, under the conditions of the total siege, where we today, indeed, this, uh, this measure did what it was intended to do, right? It created famine. It created the spread of infectious uh, disease. Uh, it created a population that has no access to clean water, has no fuel, has no medical supply. It destroyed all the, all the uh, universities in Gaza, it destroyed a majority of the hospitals, it destroyed agricultural land, it targeted cultural uh, uh, sites. So everything that we know historically that happens uh, uh, in genocide um, and with this, this a massive displacement that is now, we know that even if the Israel's attack stops now, many, many Palestinians will continue to die of these conditions of life, again, if to quote the convention, that Israel deliberately created in order to bring about the physical destruction of the group in whole or in part. So I thought that it was very important that the ruling actually quoted and emphasized both the issues of intent and the uh, dynamics of violence and the conditions uh, um, that we see now uh, on the ground. This is very, very significant. Again, the court is saying that it, there is plausibility that Israel is likely, commit, has committed and is committing acts of genocide in Gaza. And what this means for the United States, Professor Siegel? Yeah, well, I mean... Uh, um, and that the, the deliverer of the message, of course, the head of the court is an American. Yeah, I think that... Uh, um, you know, it's difficult. It's difficult to say, and I'm, uh, you know, I'm curious uh, to see how the uh, U.S. state will respond. I think that I'm very curious to see, as I said, in the next uh, few hours, I mean, beginning at noon uh, uh, today, Eastern time, the case in California, right? Uh, uh, because now the judge there has the ICJ ruling, so the judge knows that the World Court has ruled that Israel is likely committing uh, genocide. I think that uh, um, uh, I think that there will be growing pressure 
uh, also on the U.S. Uh, in this sense. Um, it's it's difficult to, to, to say what the U.S. will do, but we do know actually that in the in Europe there are more and more states, not not Germany, but more and more states that uh, uh, have already said and will in various ways need to abide uh, by the court ruling, which may be very significant in terms of obstructing arms deals, uh, refusing to facilitate transfer of arms to Israel through uh, Europe and various other measures. Uh, um, you know, I think that, as I said before, any company, any university, any state around the world now, right, knows that Israel is likely committing genocide. So the isolation of Israel, and I hope that we'll also be seeing more and more calls for direct cutting of ties with Israel, academic boycotts uh, uh, in the U.S. Uh, so while the U.S. state will definitely try, you know, to ignore uh, the ruling, uh, and we already see the headline in the New York Times today, right now, by the way, if, if uh, people are following, right, which which frames this as the court did not issue an order for ceasefire, right, which, which in effect it actually did, because if it, you know, as, as Professor Mamdani said, if it ordered, right, that Israel should cease from genocidal acts, if it ordered that Israel should facilitate the entry of humanitarian aid, it actually said you have to cease fire because otherwise there's no ways of doing that, right? So the, I think that the U.S., if to judge by the New York Times right now, will try to ignore this uh, uh, as much as possible. But I think that the pressure is going to be, we're just at the beginning of the pressure building uh, up on this issue. Um, so I think we'll, we'll, we might see some significant moves uh, uh, on this front as well. The court case you're referring to in Oakland today, uh, which will be fueled by the International Court of Justice um, uh, response from The Hague, the Center for Constitutional Rights brought the lawsuit against President Biden, accusing him of failing to follow his obligations under international and U.S. law to prevent the genocide in Gaza. The complaint brought on behalf of Palestinians, including residents of Gaza, um, <clears throat> who are asking a federal court to uh, asking a federal court to—let's see if I can read this—a um, federal court to intervene, uh, to block Biden, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken, and Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin from providing further military funding, arms, and diplomatic support to Israel. Catherine Gallagher, a senior attorney for the Center of Constitutional Rights and one of the lawyers who brought the case, said in a statement, the United States has a clear and binding obligation to prevent not further genocide. So far, they've failed in both their legal, moral duty and considerable power to end this horror. They must do so. Now, <clears throat> that's the court case that's happening in a few hours in Oakland. I also wanted to <clears throat> read the response of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. I'm reading from an article in Haaretz, the Israeli newspaper. He said the decision by the ICJ, quote, rightly rejected the outrageous demand to deny Israel the right to basic self-defense to which it's entitled as a country. According to him, quote, the very claim that Israel's committing genocide against Palestinians is not just false, it's outrageous, and the court's willingness to discuss it at all is a mark of disgrace that will not be erased for generations. I want to go back to Professor Mamdani, but first, play more of the uh, court decision as read out by the chief judge 
of the International Court of Justice, Joan Donahue. During the ongoing conflict, senior United Nations officials have repeatedly called attention to the risk of further deterioration of conditions in the Gaza Strip. The court takes note, for instance, of the letter dated 6 December 2023, whereby the Secretary General of the United Nations brought the following information to the attention of the Security Council. I quote, The health care system in Gaza is collapsing. Nowhere is safe in Gaza. Amid constant bombarding by the Israel Defense Forces and without shelter or the essentials to survive, I expect public order to break to completely break down soon due to the desperate conditions rendering even limited humanitarian assistance impossible. An even worse situation could unfold, including epidemic diseases and increased pressure for mass displacement into neighboring countries. We are facing a severe risk of collapse of the humanitarian system. The situation is fast deteriorating into a catastrophe with potentially irreversible implications for Palestinians as a whole and for peace and security in the region. Such an outcome must be avoided at all costs. End of quote. On 5 January 2024, the Secretary General wrote again to the Security Council, providing an update on the situation in the Gaza Strip and observing that, I quote, sadly, devastating levels of death and destruction continue. End of quote. The court also takes note of the 17 January 2024 statement issued by the UNRWA Commissioner General upon return from his fourth visit to the Gaza Strip since the beginning of the current conflict in Gaza. I quote, Every time I visit Gaza, I witness how people have sunk further into despair with the struggle for survival consuming every hour. End of quote. The court considers that the civilian population in the Gaza Strip remains extremely vulnerable. It recalls that the military operation conducted by Israel after 7 October 2023 has resulted inter alia in tens of thousands of deaths and injuries and the destruction of homes, schools, medical facilities, and other vital infrastructure, as well as displacement on a massive scale. The court notes that the operation is ongoing and that the Prime Minister of Israel announced on 18 January 2024 that the war, I quote, will take many more long months, end of quote. At present, many Palestinians in the Gaza Strip have no access to the most basic foodstuffs, potable water, electricity, essential medicines, or heating. The World Health Organization has estimated that 15% of the women giving birth in the Gaza Strip are likely to experience complications and indicates that maternal and newborn death rates are expected to increase due to the lack of access to medical care. In these circumstances, the court considers that the catastrophic humanitarian situation in the Gaza Strip is at serious risk of deteriorating further before the court renders its final judgment. The court recalls Israel's statement that it has taken certain steps to address and alleviate the conditions faced by the population in the Gaza Strip. The court further notes that the Attorney General of Israel recently stated that a call for intentional harm to civilians may amount to a criminal offense, including that of incitement, and that several such cases 
are being examined by Israeli law enforcement authorities. While such steps are to be encouraged, they are insufficient to remove the risk that irreparable prejudice will be caused before the court issues its final decision in the case. Joan Donahue is the chief judge of the International Court of Justice, the UN's highest court, reading out the decision of the ICJ at The Hague. When we come back, we'll continue our discussion with Mahmoud Mamdani, with Diana Butu, and with Raz Siegel. Stay with us. Asmar Elon, My Dear with the Brown Skin, performed by Lina Shamamyan. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. As we get response to the International Court of Justice handing down its decision today at The Hague, we want to go right now to the State Department, the questioning of Matt Miller, State Department spokesperson, by the Associated Press reporter Matt Lee. This took place last week about Israel's demolition of Al-Isra University in Gaza. I mean, it looks like a controlled demolition. It looks like what we do here in this country when we're taking down an old hotel or a stadium. and you have nothing to say? You I, have nothing to say about this? I, I mean, it, to do that kind of an explosion, you need to be in there. You have to put the explosives down, and it takes a lot of planning and preparation to do. And if there was a threat from this particular facility, they wouldn't have been able to do it. So I have seen the video. Uh, I can tell you that it is something we uh, are raising with the government of Israel, as we do often do uh, when we well, see raising as when, when, like, when we see to to ask questions and 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 find out what the underlying situation is, as we often do when we see reports of this nature. Um, but I'm not able to characterize the actual facts on the ground before hearing that that response. Yeah, but you saw the video. I did see the video. I don't. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what was under that building. I don't know what was under that building. I don't know what 
what was uh, inside. Well, yeah, inside but, but it doesn't matter what was under the building because they obviously got in there to put the explosives down to, to, so, to do it in I, the way that they did. Uh, again, I'm I, I'm glad you have factual certainty about. It. I just I just don't. I don't. All I, I, I have just don't. is what I, I saw I, in the video. I just right? don't. And I think you guys but saw I can it too. Say, uh, we did see it. And I can say that we have raised it with and the government. And it's not of troubling to you. Uh, we are always troubled by the by um, uh, any degradation of civilian infrastructure in Gaza. That's State Department spokesperson Matt Miller being questioned by the AP reporter Matt Lee. We're continuing our discussion and talking about facts on the ground in Gaza. Uh, we'll start with Professor Mahmoud Mamdani, professor of government at Columbia University, the School of International and Public Affairs, SIPA, specializing in the study of colonialism. You are a professor, Mamdani, uh, Professor Mamdani. If you can talk about the response of professors here to the destruction of universities, cultural spaces in Gaza, and the significance of this. And where you think this preliminary ruling of the ICJ, how you think it will affect what's being described today? Well, I think uh, the more facts come to light, uh, the more Israel's actions in uh, Gaza uh, look like a textbook case of genocide. This calculated destruction of a people's intellectual resources and intellectual legacy uh, is not something which just has a short-term impact or is based on a short-term consideration. It is aimed at a long-term resolution of this question. Um, Already, there is considerable concern amongst faculty at Columbia University. For the last few days, I've been seeing emails going around with photographs of this, what the AP reporter called controlled demolition, premeditated demolition. Um, and uh, people are asking Columbia University uh, to take action, um, to, 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 to declare where they stand. Um, and, 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 and this will go on. One thing I'm struck by as uh, uh, sort of evidence mounts um, is that uh, the court ruling uh, relied on uh, two sources uh, of information. One was uh, UN commissions, and the second was uh, statements by Israeli leaders themselves. Nothing else. And in doing so, it followed almost strictly the South African application, because the South African application also uh, drew its facts, uh, not from other sources, but from UN commissions. And now we have got a situation where the court has asked Israel to report back in a month and tell the court what it has done to comply with its decision and given South Africa the right to comment on this uh, uh, report back by, by Israel. Um, this is going to be another round of not just PR, uh, because this is going to be a controlled process. Um, so I think we are on to good territory 
uh, we are on to a territory which will bring more and more fats to life. And therefore, we are on to a territory which will permit increased political mobilization based on these facts, especially in the U.S. and Israel, because these are the two countries where there has been minimal information in the mass media on what's been going on in Gaza. Now, this will become open territory. I want to bring in Diana Butu again as we begin to wrap the show. Yesterday, Ryan Grimm in The Intercept wrote, I was at the State Department briefing today and asked if the U.S. would pledge not to veto the International Court of Justice's preliminary ruling on the genocide charges against Israel. Um, if you can respond to what that means, what this process is, and again, what's happening on the ground now in Gaza with Israel dropping more leaflets on what was a safe space, which was Khan Yunus, and this parade of humanity and misery of hundreds, if not thousands, going south from Khan Yunus. Well, Amy, um, I'm sure you saw the response, and the response was a typical American uh, administration word salad. And uh, and the reason that I think it's so important for us to continue to press ahead is because what Israel has had in mind is two things since the beginning of this attack on Gaza. First, it has made it clear that it wants to make Gaza smaller in size and they've made it clear that they want to, quote, thin out the population. So it's the combination of genocide and ethnic cleansing and taking more Palestinian land. And that's why from the beginning, it was clear to anybody who was paying attention that Israel was going to begin in the north, but then suddenly magically move to the south as everybody had looked the other way. And this is precisely what's happening. So now what Israel is doing is not only just dropping leaflets in Khan Yunus, there isn't a single place that has been safe in Gaza from, from, the, from day one. And the intention is clear. If you want to get medical treatment, even now or a, a day after the bombing uh, ends, you're going to have to seek it elsewhere. If you want to get education, you're going to have to go elsewhere. If you want to have a, a home and have a normal life, you're going to have to go elsewhere. And so it's this combination of genocide and ethnic cleansing that Israel has been pushing forward from day one. And the problem is, of course, that the United States um, has been not only an enabler uh, for Israel, but it's been blocking any other effort to try to stop this process of genocide and ethnic cleansing. And the issue of this court decision, we just have 10 seconds, going to the U.N. Security Council if violated. Yes. So under the rules of the International Court of Justice, states must oblige, they must, they're obliged to uphold the rules of the ICJ, the decisions. But if they do not, they can go to the UN Security Council. And so I suspect that we will be seeing this at the Security Council. The real question is whether the United States is going to use that veto or abstain. We want to thank you all for being with us today. Diana Butu, Palestinian human rights attorney, former advisor to the negotiating team of the Palestine Liberation Organization. In 2004, she was part of the legal team that won a case before the International Court of Justice, which ruled Israel's separation wall in the West Bank as illegal under international law. 
speaking to us from Haifa, Israel. Raz Siegel, Israeli historian and professor of Holocaust and Genocide Studies at Stockton University, and Mahmoud Mamdani, professor of government at Columbia University. That does it for our show. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks for joining us.